You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Warren Farrell. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. Well, Warren Farrell, it's just terrific to be able to talk to you again. Uh, We met in your home on the west coast of America some months ago and recorded a conversation which I thought was very valuable and which many people have appreciated. now we find ourselves in vastly different circumstances, and I'm talking to you from the living room of my home in northern New South Wales on a farm. Uh, you're at home. Uh, I'm sitting here with a copy of your book, yours and John Gray, uh, The Boy Crisis, uh, and I'm going to give it another plug. I'm going to say not only have I found it valuable, I think people should get themselves a copy and do what I did, then get several more copies and give it to their friends and to anybody they think might benefit from it. I think it's an incredibly valuable work. But I wanted to talk to you in the context of the impact of COVID-19, coronavirus, on families and individuals who suddenly find their worlds turned upside down. They're thrown together. Uh, you recently published a very interesting uh, piece of uh, a work, and I was copied in on it, talking about Uh, how many people, when they're thrown together, find in family circumstances, in fact, they've grown apart, and that's very difficult. And it shows up in the numbers, including in countries like China and Japan, where the statistics suggest that divorce and domestic violence uh, are up. We know in Australia, domestic violence reporting has risen quite substantially. Uh, And you also talk about the opportunities for families to be quite intentional particularly in reaching their boys, and I'd love to explore these issues. So thank you very much indeed for putting up with me for a second time, Warren. Totally a pleasure speaking with you. So this is not a putting up issue. (laughs) So could we begin? What what can you tell us? Uh, You're you're a brilliant researcher who keeps a a finger on things, uh, on what's happened in terms of family relationships. What's happening? in lockdown around the world, in your country perhaps first. Uh, We know from some of the work that's being done in Australia that there's some good news, people reporting more time with their children and so forth, but there's quite a bit of bad news about the stresses of people being thrown together when perhaps they're not on the same plane in the way that they ought to be. Yeah, there's a huge difference between uh, families where they are that have lived paycheck to paycheck, and you know the the um, the COVID experience of being unemployed, and, and uh, where the father and mother are unemployed, and then suddenly that is really a, an economic catastrophe, and you know they're uh, if they don't have family that they can turn to for for earning money, that have family that has a little bit more than they have, um, they're oftentimes um, quite um, in crisis. And um, and there's also, uh, there have been checks coming from the government to almost all these families. Um, and so that's taken a little bit of the crisis off. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the group that is in the most precarious situation. Uh, this, there's a second group of unemployed um, da- dads, especially, um, who have had more time with their family than they've ever had before. And, then, and, and in that group, uh, COVID's allowed uh, many dads to discover that his children need uh, dad's time as much as they need dad's dime. And that's a discovery that most fathers have never had a chance to, to make. 
And uh, once the, the dad is sitting down and even inadequately mathematically, because he doesn't remember algebra, trying to struggle with his son on algebra and algebra, or working with his son to share some family responsibilities, dads tend to do a lot with their, their sons and their daughters. And so if they're, if they're making pancakes, they teach them how to make pancakes, how to crack the eggs, um, and so on. They, they don't, uh, they're, they're not inclined to have the child sit and watch them, but rather do with them. And for both children, both girls and boys, this works well. For boys, it works exceptionally well. And so that creates a bond that oftentimes has never been between um, a dad and, and child before. Uh, mother is experiencing the father because he's home if he's unemployed um, and seeing that, that the father can and will um, share the housework and share responsibilities that he hasn't shared before um, allows a lot of women to see that, you know, that the real difference was that the father was out there working 40 hours a week and commuting another you know, eight or nine hours a week. And, you know, that, but if he was home, he would be able to be uh, more connected with the children. Uh, the big challenge is um, whether the family knows how to communicate when they have more time together. And that's the, uh, one of the big uh, differences between families that are really discovering each other uh, during the COVID uh, crisis or um, discovering each other in a more negative way um, that, you know, why are we married? And, um, and, you know, and, and, and that's what's of course led to the enormous increase in filings for divorce in China and Japan and many of the other countries that are sort of moving through uh, the process of having had an extended period of time where the families have lived together. Well, uh, I'd love to explore that aspect of relationships with children by fathers in a moment. But before we do, uh, you wrote, and I find uh, your, your way with words is brilliant, uh, recently, that the catch-22 uh, is often in the area of communication. And you said the Achilles heel of all humans is our inability to handle personal criticism from a loved one without becoming defensive. Love doesn't solve the problem because the more deeply we love, the more vulnerable we feel. Vulnerability's mask is anger. To avoid anger, we walk on eggshells and soon being together leads to feeling apart. And so I'd just like to explore for a moment if, uh, your thoughts uh, on what advice you would give to people who are finding that thrown together, they have been drawn apart. So we're really talking about mums and dads here because that seems to be critically important uh, for how the children do. Uh, it's great if they're getting more time with dad, but what if they're seeing mum and dad come apart? Uh, you do a lot of work in this area, and I'd, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on it. Yes, but my work in this area really started from seeing that um, when I did, you know, when I was doing research for what eventually became the boy crisis, I started to see, well, the boy crisis often results from families who divorce and divorces, uh, and then that often leads to a lack of father involvement. And particularly the boys and girls who didn't have um, a significant amount of father involvement after divorce, that was a strong component of what became the boy crisis. The girls suffered from a lack of father involvement, but the boys suffered more intensely. Both the girls and boys suffered in more than 50 developmental areas, but the, but the boys suffered more intensely in those areas. The boys were far more likely to 
commit suicide, report depression, um, withdraw into video games, withdraw into pornography, um, and sort of become alienated, um, become purposeless, um, become failures to launch. And um, they were much more likely to move back into their families' homes. It used to be after college, uh, women would be much more likely to move back into their, their families' homes, um, go into the basement and so on. Now, boys in the United States are 66% more likely uh, to move into their families' homes. And so uh, I started seeing that a lot of this was happening. So I started tracing it back and saying, okay, if the, if the boys are particularly suffering as a result of divorce, what we need to try to prevent divorce, but you can't legislate against people um, getting divorces. That's very dysfunctional and keeps a lot of people um, together that's, that are not meant to be together. Um, but what you can do is improve the communication to keep people together. However, I started seeing that the Achilles heel of all human beings is our inability to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive. So I said, I started saying to myself, well, the couples communication workshops that people do, and that must teach them to not be defensive. But I found that the couples workshops that were, that were existing around the world were mostly giving couples insights, insights to themselves, insights into relationships. But the moment criticism occurred, they lost the ability to attach to those rational insights. All the, all the rational, learnings they had done in couples workshops went out the window and they they moved back into sort of becoming defensive arguing with each other so people became afraid to bring up to their partner what was concerning them because the last five times they brought they brought up what their concerns were their partner their partner became defensive and the, uh, the whole process escalated and it only became um, an angry battle back and forth the children were witnessing it they were and they were just saying to themselves Unless my concern is super large, I'm not going to bring it up at all. And those things oftentimes became um, anger inside of themselves that, that, that at one point uh, came out like a volcano. And no one was taught to understand that anger is vulnerability's mask. People, when they see anger, they see power, they, they develop fear, as opposed to being able to be trained to look at that anger and say, anyone that gets angry at me, whether it's my child, my wife, my husband, Underneath that anger is almost always vulnerability, a feeling of not being heard. Um, and so I started asking myself, well, how do I get couples to respond non-defensively to personal criticism? And the answer was, it's biologically natural to become defensive when you're criticized. So the job is to do a workaround to that biologically natural propensity to be defensive when criticized. And the workaround is, the, um, is, is altering your natural biological state. So what I teach couples to do is um, only do concerns or criticisms once a week and only one, the, major, the most important concern you have and the rest of the week to develop a conflict-free zone. And I teach people how to sustain that conflict-free zone um, during the course of the week. So if somebody brings something up during the week that is upsetting to them and they're ready to pounce back at their partner for bringing, you know, for a different perspective on that, um, I, I teach them to take that, take that anger and, uh, and to do something like journal on it. And the first step of the journaling uh, should be that, that you write down 
all the reasons why you're right and your partner's wrong. And then you then step two is writing down just one thing that your partner might have been right about. Step three is maybe a few things you could have done differently. And then ultimately you do an sort of an empathetic type of um, possibility for with your partner. Then when it comes to that, the end of the week or whatever you've set aside each week is what I call a caring and sharing time. At that point, you move into a number of mindsets before you hear your partner's criticism. So first you, first you receive from your partner a couple of appreciations, and I teach people how to do appreciations much more specifically than people are trained to do. And then after you hear very specific appreciations from your partner, you move into hearing just one concern that your partner has, but before you hear that concern, you um, do these six mindsets that I've found work the best, one of those mindsets is what I call a love guarantee. And that love guarantee is saying to yourself, okay, if, if I provide a safe environment for my partner being able to say whatever she or he wants to say, my partner will feel more heard by me. If they feel more heard by me, they'll feel more loved by me. If they feel more loved by me, they'll love me more. So by providing a safe environment for no matter how much anger my partner has, um, I'm, the more anger my partner has, the more impressed my partner will be that I'm just sort of providing a safe space for them to be able to express their feelings. But the irony is that the moment you provide that safe space, your partner senses that you're providing that safe space so that they don't need to become angry in order to be heard. So the anger disappears because the partner is feeling heard. And you know, another thing that I do that's really fascinating is having everybody in the workshop fill out privately a, an identical piece of yellow paper in which they answer the question, if your partner was about to die, and you knew with 100% certainty that you could save your partner's life, but you'd have a 50% chance of dying yourself. Would you do it? And then step one is, answer one is yes, answer two is no, answer three is uncertain. The only thing that's changed from normal life, as I say, make believe you didn't have children, so children aren't a concern. But in terms of caring for your partner, would you die for your partner or not? Well over, these are couples that come to my workshop, maybe um, a quarter of them are coming purely for improving their relationship, about half have had a rocky relationship, and maybe another quarter are coming that are on the verge of divorce. Nevertheless, about 95% of the men say, yes, I'd be willing to take a 50% risk of dying in order to save my wife, and about 85% of women say they would do that for, their, for the man that they're at that workshop with, some married, some not. And so it gives almost everybody in the workshop this enormous experience of, wait a minute, if I would die for this person that I love, certainly I can listen to them. You know, dying is a lot more challenging than just listening for 15 minutes. And so uh, with mindsets like that, they alter their natural propensity for defensiveness and they hear out their partner's concerns but they have that caring and sharing time on the calendar every, uh, every week, all the time. They know that if there's something that happens and they're really angry at their partner, that they must go through a process of doing the things like journaling um, and many other options, and then that they will always be heard more during that caring and sharing time than they will at the moment 
in which they can be guaranteed pretty much that the fight will, that the disagreement will always escalate and allow people not to do, to do that. Once the, the parents learn that, the children see the parents communicating that way. It prepares the children to be able to handle different difficulties they have with their friends, with their first boyfriend or girlfriend, because they have so many things built in. The first time my um, daughter came to me and uh, had problems in, in a relationship, and I and she and uh, her boyfriend asked if they could see me privately, um, and I started sharing some of these things. My daughter goes, oh, that's what you and mom do all the time. Now, I didn't even know that she was picking these things up. So, you know, as almost every parent will, will acknowledge, um, their children see a lot of things um, that are, by example, that they don't even really articulate uh, that they've seen or understood, but they start behaving that way accordingly. And, that's, and so that is what um, needs to, uh, is an example of the primary thing that needs to happen. And, um, and then the secondary thing that needs to happen is, um, is this type of behavior um, happening at family dinner nights. Um, and so I've set up in the Boy Crisis book a whole, an appendix that comes up so frequently uh, during the, 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 uh, uh, the course of the, of, of the book um, that I decided to sort of construct the, each of the steps that a person needs to, a family needs to take to make sure that every person in a family dinner night does not have a family dinner night that tends to evolve into a family dinner nightmare, um, but everyone knows how to listen to everybody else at that family dinner night and listen to them no matter how fiercely they disagree uh, with, with them. Listen first and then, then, and not only but the parents to listen to the child, but also the children learning to listen to the parents. So the children learn that our family is a team um, I'm not the only one that gets listened to. Um, everybody at this table gets listened to and heard. Well, Warren, I think that's gold. If I had my way, I'd, I'd pot it up and provide it free of charge to every family in the country. Uh, but um, given that a lot of people at the moment probably can't move around, uh, are unsure about where to get good advice, uh, they're heeding uh, what you're saying and the importance of getting their relationships into a good place, not just for themselves, but for their children. Where do they find resources apart from your book? What can you point them to? And, and, and we'll put it up on the screen as well. Yes, and I didn't have a really good answer to that question. First of all, um, doing counseling with any good counselor that you get a that, that has a good reputation in your area is almost always very helpful. However, um, this means you know, a great many families cannot afford this. And some of the families with the least amount of education and emotional um, training and, and training and sort of nuance and things like this um, can, cannot afford it. And so the great, the, the, the one for me, one of the things that this COVID period has, um, has allowed is that because all my flying to speaking engagements and workshops on these issues have been um, canceled, it's giving me the time to take this couple's workshop and put it on, in, on Zoom. And so at the end of June, it'll be available. So, and I'm gonna make it available for a very inexpensive price so that families don't have to be um, middle class or more uh, to, be able to, um, to, to be able to see. 
um, and, and experience this material. And in a way, one of the things that's more valuable than me being there is that um, once um, I go through the entire workshop with a couple of couples and other people can see it, they can, they can go, they can review it and review it as often as they need to. Um, to be able to refresh their, you know, to just refresh their um, their training of themselves in that area. So, you know, I'm very happy to say that that's um, something I'm looking forward to, um, to to making available to, so that you'll be able to say mention it to people in Australia, and um, and have that available for them. Let me move on to uh, something else that interests me. Uh, do you think that for a lot of parents? In an age when the suggestion's been there that if you're not happy in a relationship, it's in your interest to get out of it uh, and it's in your children's interest not to be unhappy around them. Do you think there's an incentive for a lot of people now to, that, that derives from seeing their children not thrive to sort out their relationship, to recognise the importance of doing better in their relationship with the other parent? Yes. Yeah, I cannot. Um, I have I have been educated myself on this issue. Um, you know, from I was I, as a, somebody who always believed that people should you know live, be fulfilled and so on. Um, I used to feel that you know if you don't get along and you haven't gotten along for an extended period of time and uh, you should be able to get divorced, etc. Yes, you should be legally able to get divorced. However, the culture needs to send the message that that a great many uh, a, a, a good part of the reason that people don't get um, that get get divorced and don't stay married or together um, is because they don't feel heard by their partner, um, and they ignore number two. And I've sort of gone over that issue already, but number two is that there's no cultural appreciation for the value of dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting and the differences that are natural to that, uh, those two different styles. Uh, just to pick up something that does concern me, um, many of those who are listening will be thinking, well, unfortunately, we've already been through the divorce process or I'm not in contact with my children. Others will be saying, I'm looking after children, but the mother or the father isn't here, usually the father, of course. The statistics reveal that. And so you've got, I think, probably a third of, of, of teenage children who are not living with both parents. And in some sections of the community, it will double. Uh, what advice, without being judgmental or wanting to be harsh, can we offer uh, to people who want to look after their children, but the relationships between the parents are not intact for some reason or another? How then do you move to do the best possible for those children? Uh, two things. One is to the most frequent um, way this breaks out, of course, is that the mother has the children more than the father has the children, and um, and so one of the values of a mom, if if a mom, okay, let's take the bigger picture on this. Throughout history, we've every generation's had its war, and when we so we told Ben, you are needed to serve men were willing to give up their lives in order to serve to, because they were told they were needed. Well, when a mom tells, learns what the value of dad-style parenting is and tells a dad, 
um, you know, I real you t well. I'll give a specific example from my my wife said about her former husband. Um, she, he used to allow her to sort of the, he used to allow the children uh, to sort of get involved in situations which um, uh, which she thought was dangerous. Now, in retrospect, she realized that they really weren't dangerous, but they might get a little bit hurt. And so she would always sort of like withdraw from valuing the fact that um, the children might be put in, in harm's way, minor harm's way. And so he, after a while, just withdrew and withdrew and eventually got involved with another woman who seemed to want to have him around her children. And so what, what the first thing that needs to happen is a mom needs to study what are the values of the different types of ways that dad's parent. And then you need to let him know two things. One is that you know that these have values like the rough housing, like the, the willingness to have the child climb the tree. Um, and number two, uh, that the children don't, that you don't only value it, but that the children need that input from him. And that you didn't realize, you, you, that you didn't realize that before. And he, and he never said that to you before, um, except maybe in anger or sarcastic terms. Um, and so, um, and, and now you're willing, not, not, now you're not only hearing that, but you need him to be part of that child's life. And you need him to not only set boundaries like you do as a mom, but also to enforce the boundaries that you set and be willing to have the children be, um, be angry at you for enforcing those boundaries, uh, which oftentimes a mom will set boundaries, statistically moms set boundaries uh, more frequently than dads do, uh, but dads enforce boundaries much more frequently than moms do. Moms have to be able to communicate with dads that they're really um, of value and know that they're needed. That said, maybe the dad is really a very destructive personality, uh, a violent person, um, is not um, really a good, a good human being, or at least hasn't learned to develop himself into being a good human being. And if, that's, and if the dad is dangerous to the child, then there are other options. Um, it's really important for you as a mom to get your children in, involved with the faith-based community, um, with it, where you have a good uh, minister, priest, um, rabbi, imam, um, to be able to, who's a good leader that you trust, and make sure that you encourage that leader to get to, to get boys uh, your child's age or, um, or girls your, your daughter's age, to be able to uh, talk with each other about their feelings and their fears. Girls are much better about doing that naturally. Boys are terrible about doing that naturally. Part of masculinity is wearing a mask by which you sort of project that you're strong, even when you're feeling weak and insecure. It's essential that boys be exposed to other boys um, in a confidential setting that the, that the children are, that the boys are not allowed to talk about outside of that circle um, so that no, there's no fear of sh sharing their vulnerabilities. Uh, that's very important. It's very important to get your boy, your son and daughter involved with sports. It all sounds to me like a recipe for sound, real, uh, and if you like, disciplined approach to parenting and to life. I have a huge regard for the work that Jonathan Haidt has done. Uh, and he says that often um, through no attempt to do the wrong thing, just the opposite, do the right thing, we raise our children to... to, to if you like, fall for three major fallacies. The first is that uh, what doesn't hurt you 
will make you weaker instead of stronger. Uh, we don't teach resilience, toughness, how to learn from the, the things that go wrong because things do go wrong. The second thing he says is always trust your feelings. Well, you know, that water looks nice. I think I'd feel good if I had a swim and I'll ignore that sign that says there are crocodiles in here. Uh, but the third thing uh, that he says that I think is really interesting is that we're teaching our children that life is a battle between good people and bad people. Now, a properly functioning family which where the husband or where the mother and the father or father figure, we hope they, they can be there, uh, demonstrate the reality that people have differences, that we're all a mixture of good and bad. No one has a monopoly on perfection, being right all the time, that tough things do happen and the way we respond is important. We can't pretend they're not there or uh, remove our children from all difficulties. That's not real. And we need to learn to think. What I hear you saying is that a properly functioning family, with all of the things, the ups and downs of family life, will be very well equipped to teach their children the realities of life and that part of it requires a firm self-discipline on the part of the parents, but also an appropriate disciplining of the children. Absolutely. I totally agree with Hyde and also um, feel that even if you have those insights that Hyde is talking about and you have those insights, but you cannot feel that those insights will be heard by your sister, your brother, uh, your mother, your father, um, you know, or your children, um, that leaves you um, oftentimes seen as the parent that's sort of unnecessarily mean. And what I need to do is ask that question of my mother or ask permission for that from my mother or ask permission for that. Or if, you know, if, 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 if daddy has a little, a girl, a daughter that he, you know, that can wrap her, uh, wrap him around her fingers. Um, you know, she goes to daddy to get what, what she wants uh, on some things and goes to mom and other things. And so when that's not discussed at a family table and everybody isn't heard, like the brother is, doesn't say, you know, I feel like, you know, you often give in to, um, Krista much more frequently than you do to me. And here's the double standard that I see. And it makes me not feel loved or valued. Um, and the, you know, and the, and the parents just interrupt and say, well, you're very loved and valued. And that's, and the, and the boy just feels dismissed as opposed to really heard. Like it must be really challenging to be, for you to see this happen. And you, you don't feel loved by us. Um, and you know, what would, if you were, if you were in our position, what would you do? It's very important to ask your children lots of times, make believe you're us now and we're you. Um, how, would, how would you do that? I remember asking my daughter that once, one of my daughters that once, um, and she just came up with, you know, um, I, we were being, I was, we were doing something that was a little bit disciplined. And she said, I said to her, if, if you were the parent, what would you do here? And she said, I do exactly what you're doing because I see what the purpose was. And then she reeled off the entire purpose of it and the value of it. She says, but I'm the kid and I want to argue against you. <laughs> and so it was like, <laughs> and so, but, but the thing is that a, she got it in the back of her mind, but B what the question did was asking her to role play the parent. It got, it, it brought that for just a short period of time to the front burner, as opposed to just um, sandwiched away conveniently on the back burner. And so, um, we need to ask our kids to 
um, perform and discipline and have that discipline um, and the the attitude that we've come to you know the helicopter parents that that overprotects is definitely training a child to not have a life uh, which uh, that is able to 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 go through the um, to, to go through the tough things in life which require discipline as well as a dream having said that um, sometimes a dad in particular will be will take the tough love role without allowing his child to, to hear and I mean verbally hear that I want you to know I love you it, you're, as a dad you've got to tell that ch your ch children that you do love them sometimes when the, when the father overtakes the, the tough position he doesn't share the love position, the, the, the love feeling, and uh, hold his child and nurture his child often enough. And so the child feels more like the father is, um, doesn't like him or her, or doesn't respect them, or is just around somebody to be um, ignored because he's too, or he's always gonna discipline me. So uh, interestingly, when a father is in a divorce situation and has the child, um, in by himself, he tends to do a greater balance between the discipline and the nurturing, the, uh, the, the love and the holding and the discipline. Whereas when the mother is in the picture, very frequently the father will leave the nurturing and the I love you and the I protect you to the mother and take the, the tough love position. Uh, but you know, the tough love is called tough love because the love needs to be expressed as often as the tough. And so um, an important message to dad is, uh, is don't, let don't let the willingness of moms to protect, love, and nurture um, take away from your letting your children know how much you love them, how much you care about protecting them, and that your method of protecting them, which is less protection-oriented, is not is because you want that to to give them long-term protection and long-term effectiveness in life um, and all of that happens best around a family dinner table uh, which is constructed in such a way as to be um, uh, to be a fascinating dinner conversation P parents often say to me I well I can't get my children to to put down their electronics at the dinner table well as soon as I hear that from a parent I know that that that, that parent that the children are in charge of the parent, not the parent in charge of the children. Um, that you know, there are so many things you give to your children that you can just say, um, you know, the, the the electronics are not allowed at the table, and if you wish to, you know, have the electronics at the table, um, yeah, there'll be no dessert tonight. Um, you know, there'll be no this, there'll be no that. We won't be paying for the for the for, for the bill on that. Um, you know, the, your computer will be taken out of your room, put in the kitchen, so we can know what you're doing. And sooner or later, the child will get the point that there's no. Um, there's no electronics at the table or she or he will suffer a lot more uh, than, than they were before. And also the importance of that, those dinner conversations, when you are able to, when everybody at the table is trained to listen to each other, the conversations can be extremely controversial.
They can talk about things um, that most families won't talk about, things like sex, things about politics, things that are, uh, that are politically incorrect. And, and boys in particular like talking about controversial things. Oftentimes they don't like talking about controversial things with their parents because their parents will just squish it, uh, the conversation, or just sort of, you know, they'll, they'll give politically correct answers. Um, but uh, when their feelings can be fully heard, then it becomes exciting. And when kids who are neighbors or friends or kids from school come over and have dinner and they hear these conversations going into, con into controversial areas, but everybody being able to be heard at the dinner table, I mean, the kids, neighbors, friends, kids from school, they're very interested in, in having to being involved and having dinner with a family that can really talk with each other because that's an exceptional family. And so this, this ends up bringing um, admiration and respect from schoolmates to your children's lives and creating much greater social um, psychological development and emotional intelligence. So, so Warren, we, you and I could talk because we, I think, both care about human flourishing and what happens to our children along these lines forever. But let's shift to what it means for our culture, for our countries, for our future. It seems to me that a, a wise American senator, whose name I can't recall, about 40 years ago I read, said something along, along the lines of, America in the end is nothing less, nothing more than the sum total of individual Americans. And to the extent that individual Americans are flourishing and able to contribute and so on and so forth, the nation flourishes to the extent that they're damaged, hurt, marginalised, uh, culture suffers. There is a very real dimension, you know, I had a lot of time in public life, uh, to uh, the whole question of families, coherence uh, and uh, cooperation versus breakdown, the way in which our children are raised and the sort of future that they themselves will enjoy. Now, you have actually put a lot of hard numbers around the very real cost to taxpayers of family disintegration and particularly of, of men falling through the cracks. It'd be just briefly, it'd be a good thing to remind ourselves that there is a very high cost to family breakdown. Absolutely. And, and just a couple of real quick examples of this is that um, as I've studied every school shooter in the 20th, first century, uh, since the year 2000, um, that uh, if we look at the, um, the ones that have killed 10 or more people, um, every single one of them have had in common two things. Uh, one is being male. And number two is being male, a male who, did not, who had minimal or no father involvement, what I call a dad-deprived male. And we look in the, at the prison population. Uh, the prison population is about 93% in the United States male, uh, but almost about 90% of those males are dad-deprived males. Uh, what, what, we, what we see is that the, um, the costs of this, um, what I calculated, the costs of children being brought up with dad-deprived dad children um, is about a trillion dollars in federal spending each year. This is just federal spending, to say nothing of state and local spending, uh, nothing about the, the cost of cleaning up the crime, the cost of keeping people in prison, the cost of homeland security. Um, this is almost all, these are almost all triggered 
by dad-deprived children, um, and mostly by dad-deprived, almost completely by dad-deprived males. Um, ISIS recruits was um, is, is a third area. Um, ISIS recruits are not only 90% male, um, but they're but the males and the females who are ISIS recruits are um, are both. Um, dad-deprived males and females for the most part. And so the, the, the price that we pay for the divorces from the lack of good communication that leads to the divorces, that leads to the lack of father involvement, is an enormous price. When, may, when boys hurt, boys who hurt tend to hurt us. Uh, they act out. Girls who hurt um, will, with, will withdraw, they, they'll be depressed or they won't withdraw, they'll express their feelings, they'll cry, they'll ask for help. Girls are far more likely to ask for help than boys are. And so as a result of girls asking for help, they're far less likely to get to the place of being so depressed and withdrawn that they end up doing school shootings or mass shootings or, or, or being ISIS recruits or being, um, uh, being criminals. And so uh, there's an enormous uh, economic cost um, and a cost in terms of having huge government become a substitute husband um, uh, because it leaves the, the, when boys do badly, then girls aren't willing to marry those boys, nor should they marry those boys and young men. When they don't marry those boys and young men, they're bringing up families by themselves. They're often overwhelmed. They, um, they, have, um, they can't keep up with both the, the family and the type of job that they would like. They often need money from the government to do that. Um, so the government becomes a substitute husband uh, for, for the um, girls and young women. Um, and the and the and the government is paying enormous costs for homeland security to protect themselves against ISIS recruits. Uh, they're over securitizing um, schools and 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 the the um, Washington D.C. now um, almost every building which used to be beautiful buildings that you'd had nice access to has um, has these barriers in front of it to prevent cars or uh, or trucks from going up and you know putting a bomb in front of the building. And so, you know, it, the, the, not only does the feel of the place look less free, um, but the costs of maintaining those securities against, um, uh, uh, to, to prevent the, the secondary outcome of families um, being deteriorated and therefore individuals uh, in those families um, being failures to launch, being suicidal, being depressed, taking drugs, taking opioids, um, doing worse in schools, not preparing themselves by being unmotivated, not preparing themselves to be good um, workers, by not being good workers, they, instead of um, paying taxes, they end up being a drain on the taxpayer, uh, on, on, on taxes and creating a bigger and bigger government to take care of people who are less and less emotionally healthy and less functional. And one of the solutions to this needs to be every single school needs to be have, have communication training um, in first, second grade, early school, teaching kids how to hear each other, listen to each other, um, and because the bullies and the bullied have a lot in common, which is usually a lack of self-esteem. Yeah, oh, that makes a resounding sense to me. Now, to move on to a topic that's highly sensitive and get you, can get you into a lot of trouble, but seems to me to be unbelievably important. It requires, a, I think, a great deal more honesty than we see in the public debate. Uh, 
In the context of the Me Too movement, the horrendous issue of family violence in this country is now seeing us saying uh, women are always right whenever domestic violence is involved, is always the men's fault. Now, I don't for a moment excuse any man being violent. Uh, I find it abhorrent. I don't understand it. I, don't, I can't comprehend how a man could use physical strength to attack uh, a person of the other sex. That, that's, that's me personally. But what really worries me about this is that what you're not allowed to talk about, it seems, is that men are not doing well. Uh, you've written extensively about this. Men are not doing well, and you say if men are not doing well, then neither sex is doing well. But you're not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to talk about it. And you're also not apparently allowed to talk about the influence of the family home on young people and particularly young men. Uh, this really worries me. Don't we need to be more honest? Men, look, the suicide numbers tell you. Uh, the figures that you've just talked about tell you. Uh, the jail population numbers. Uh, men, in many ways, are silent sufferers, not doing well, and we're pretending, and I think that's the word I would use advisedly, that we can fix up the problem of domestic violence by simply saying it's all men's fault. Whereas I actually think we need to have a long, hard look at where the idea of violence being acceptable is ever allowed to arise. Uh, not wanting to be too long-winded because we want to hear you, not me, but an older man I respect, happily married now for probably 60 years, said to me the other day that when he was growing up, he was taught in no uncertain terms by his mother that she was to open the car door if she had groceries, that he was to stand aside and let her through the door first uh, when they went back into the house. Uh, and if he didn't listen to her, mum would come down on him like a ton of bricks. And he made the comment that he wondered, so I pose this as a question, whether a man who had been taught as a kid to respect women in that way would or could even turn out to then be violent. So there's a bunch of issues in there. Don't we need to be more honest about the fact that our men are not doing well and it starts with the home environment? Yes, yes, there's a huge amount packed in there and a huge amount to sort of unsort. Um, Sorry, I'm being long-winded. That's, 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 that's wonderful, um, really is. Um, so first, first of all, the, the best solution to domestic violence is being able to hear each other. If you're, if you're hearing your partner's upset, um, and your partner then has no need to have to raise his or her voice um, to be sarcastic. Um, sarcasm, raising one's voice, um, comes as a result. So, for example, if, if my if my uh, wife is talking with me, um, and and she says, you know, Warren, you really did this terribly thing today, and I go, wow, tell me more about that. The chances of her hitting me um, go way down. The chance, uh, but if I if I, if I listen to her for a few uh, seconds and then I interrupt her and then I argue with her, and then she tries to and then I distort what she's saying, 
and she feels really frustrated. And then, um, so she starts to argue back and explain what, why, how I just distorted it. And then I distort it again and interrupt her again and argue back again and accuse her of something. I keep sidestepping, countering, attacking. She'll get angry and angry and angry, and she might hit me um, because she's so frustrated and I'm so in her face. And so, um, and so what's just happened there is that by not hearing her effectively, I've made her feel more and more vulnerable. And that vulnerability has led to her slapping me because she was out of control at that moment. And so that's the fundamental that's behind almost every time someone hits another person um, is that anger is almost always vulnerability's mass. That's the first understanding we have to have that the, that the solution to that is learning how to hear the people we love and how to hear anybody, but particularly the people we love is, is the, the single biggest solution to domestic violence. Number two, somebody might be listening to this and say, uh, I think you're just creating an excuse for men being violent to women. Well, let's deal with that straight on. I would never seek to do that, and neither would you. But it's a, yeah. You certainly wouldn't, but somebody, I'm trying to. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Mm. And so we now have more than 100 studies, mostly American, but some from um, England and um, Europe and Australia as well, um, uh, that have been done of domestic violence. The first ones were done in the 1970s, and they asked men and women um, who were. Um, who, who did you ever hit your partner? Did your partner ever hit you? And the, um, and the, the results were in the 1970s that the men, um, that, that the women hit the men as often as the men hit the women. Well, feminists objected to that and said, wait a minute, you haven't asked the women. The women tell the truth, the men don't. And so the, there's a real problem with believing that only one sex tells the truth, but we'll get to that in a moment. The, um, Joe Biden is finding out the problem with that <laughs> right now. And, the, um, and so the, the next um, thing that happened was that, so they, is this next surveys that were done um, asked two questions that were different. They asked the women, were you the first one to hit the man or was the man the first one to hit you? they found that more women in relationships said that, the man, that they were the first one to hit their husband um, or their male partner um, than, than, uh, than the other way around. So the women acknowledged that they were the first ones to do the hitting um, of the male um, more than the other. And the males said the same thing, that the women were the first ones to do the hitting. They just said it to a higher percentage uh, than the, male, the females acknowledge it. So the next response on the part of feminists was, well, wait a minute, the, when the men hit, they really hurt the women. And when the women hit, they don't hurt the men. So they started doing a, um, a scale of the amount of violence. And, uh, and then that, was, um, that became a seven dimension scale from um, you were slapped by your partner, you were punched by your partner, you, your partner hit you with something, your partner threw something at you, your partner stabbed you, your partner um, shot you, uh, your part, and then of course the partner killed you, the people weren't around to answer the question. So that, that one is answered a little bit differently. Um, but let's take the first six levels first. The, um, the first six levels, um, the women, um, and even the women answered that they were the ones to be more violent, and this is only slightly more frequently uh, than the men, 
at each of the seven different levels of violence, uh, six different levels of violence short of the killing. Uh, the men answered that the women were considerably more likely to do that. The women just answered very slightly more likely to do it at each of those uh, six levels. Um, except for the um, in, in dating relationships, dating violence, the women acknowledge much more violence toward their male um, dates uh, than the female. Than than uh, they were the first. They were the first ones to hit their boyfriend uh, versus their boyfriend hitting them. So the gap is much larger female to male violence among dating people. Once they're in relationships and once they're married, um, it becomes more even. So the, the, the big thing around this is, that why do we only think that, data, that violence, domestic violence, is, female, is male to female and not male to, and not fem and not male, not female to male? And so the feminists said, well, that's because it just isn't true. So many feminists um, too started doing the research on their own. And so about 70, 80% of the studies of the 100 studies that I was mentioning of domestic violence around the world um, were done by women. And about 80, 90% of those women were some version of, of strong feminists or identified as moderate feminists when we were able to find out that, the answer to that question. And so um, to the feminist credit, almost all of these studies found the findings that I'm just talking to you about. So the feminists were honest enough to be able to say, wow, I didn't think this was true, therefore I was challenging the, the credibility of this early research in the 70s, and I found out that to my surprise, this, um, this what I'm just saying now, is true. And so we, we need to really, uh, so now then that requires entirely different solutions. And once we know that this is a two sex problem uh, and the solutions are being able to hear each other, that's the way you reduce domestic violence. But the solutions that currently exist is we have domestic um, violence shelters for women and not for men. And so that's really unfair to women because if there's an argument between a man and a woman, it should not be the woman that has to leave the home to go into a shelter. It should be either the man or the woman that may need to leave their home for a day and have a place to, to be uh, without the man having to be out and be homeless and the woman having a shelter. Second level of problem is that the, the domestic violence shelters are teaching women that once a man is violent, he will always be violent. Do not go back to that man. As opposed to teaching a, a woman when she goes into the domestic violence shelters, we're gonna bring your husband in, we're gonna bring your boyfriend in, and we're gonna train you to go through couples communication training where you both learn how to listen to each other so that the level of, the level of being out of control will, allow, will be substituted for by being able to be heard. And therefore, when you have disagreements, you'll learn how to turn those into love rather than turn them into uh, domestic violence. And so that's the path we need to take. However, we are far from taking that path. And unfortunately, uh, that path has most been taken um, by uh, the, in the United States by the Violence Against Women Act. And uh, Vice President Biden was the person uh, most uh, behind that act and, um, and, the, and the setting up of women's shelters and everything that I'm talking about, all that fallacious reasoning has only, um, has 
is only perpetuating a problem which with one-tenth of the money being spent uh, could really have minimized uh, a problem that is very significant and be, needs to be paid attention to. And all of this is reinforced by um, hashtags like hashtag believe women. There's a really enormous distinction here. Um, and, you know, um, and Vice President Biden was a very strong supporter of hashtag believe women. And now he's experiencing himself being accused of, of um, being a sexual um, molester and quasi rapist on the verge of rapist um, by what, he, what he's accused of doing. And he says is 100% untrue, which contradicts completely what he said before, which is hashtag believe women. And women like men are no better and no worse. We have our shadow sides, we all, we all lie, uh, we all exaggerate, and we all remember things differently. Any person who knows memory, who studies memory, knows that everyone tends to remember things from the past in ways that they see through a filter that teaches, that tells them that they're right and the other person was wrong. And so uh, we need, and that's the value of due process and to disregard due process as we've done in our colleges in the United States and to say that if a woman says something she is to be believed and the man is not even allowed to have his lawyer cross-examine um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the lawyer of the woman who's um, saying she was uh, violated in some way. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the type of lack of due process that will come back to haunt uh, people like Vice President Biden, uh, whether no matter what level of interest he's in. And so this is going to hurt. Um, and, and if you respect women, if we respect women, which is extremely important, if we respect women, we must challenge women to, to have the same due process applied to them as to, as to men. If we protect women unduly in relation to the way we protect men, what we are really doing is saying, women, we feel you are children. Women, we don't respect you. Well, again, fascinating insights. Uh, it takes me back to Haidt's point about teaching our children that life is a dividing line between good and evil. This tendency to set men against women that I think is so evident at the moment will only weaken our culture as we go into the very, very difficult post-COVID age when we'll all need to be resilient, strong, at our best. Um, I, I'm fascinated by the conversation. Uh, I really must let you go. But before we do, um, I think one of the important points uh, and that I enjoy about our friendship uh, arises out of this um, we come at it from different perspectives uh, and it's important to, I think, recognise that some things are above party politics. Uh, a journalist I quite like and respect said of me the other day when I'd made some remarks about the importance of, a, of the home environment for the raising of children, uh, oh, well, you'd expect him to say that because he comes from a certain political perspective. Some things are above politics. You and I would have different perspectives on a lot of political issues. Uh, and yet you would say, uh, I think, with me, that human flourishing depends entirely or overwhelmingly on the sort of environment in which we nurture the next generation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Warren, it's been incredibly good of you to give us so generously of your time again. I could talk forever, as my critics would 
be quick to point out. Uh, but uh, I think you've given us some fantastic insights. I look forward very much to the day when we can host you to a visit to this country, I guess post the lockdown era. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, all the very best. We might circle back when, at the end of June, you've got some more material that we can simply promote for the value of uh, anybody who's prepared to uh, engage. Very forward to visiting you and I'm very forward to doing work with uh, Australians um, who care about communication and care about men and women really understanding and having compassion for each other. The only thing I disagree with you about is that I don't think you're a good talker. I think you're, I mean, you're a wonderful talker, but you aren't a talker. You're a wonderful listener and a wonderful, wonderful facilitator of, um, of what I hope um, was a, a value um, to share. Well, I think it was fantastic and I thank you for your time. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.